Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Whitney G. Gamble. Whitney is a professor at Providence Christian College in Pasadena, California, and we're going to be talking to Whitney about her new book, Christ and the Law, Antinomianism at the Westminster Assembly, recently published by Reformation Heritage Books in 2018. Whitney, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great. It's great that you can be here. Uh, Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Uh, So I am, uh, as you mentioned, a professor at uh, Providence Christian College in Pasadena, and I teach biblical and theological studies there and historical theology as well. I have been teaching there for about four years and before that, I taught um, on the East Coast. I'm from the East Coast of the States originally. And uh, I got my PhD in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, I've been uh, working in the area of theology for, for a number of years. So Very good. So you've written this really quite compelling and an extremely important book about a subject that none of us really knew anything about up until this <laughs> point. Um, can you tell us about how you came to choose that particular topic? Yes, sure. Uh, it is it is rather an obscure topic. Um, it, 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 the book uh, came out of my PhD studies originally. So I, I, I came to Edinburgh um, to work with Susan Hardman more there. And originally I was planning to work um, on the Puritan theologian John Owen and some of the theological controversies that surrounded him. And um as I began my research, I, I needed to set the stage, set the context for for Owen and his his debates. And as I kind of delved into the theological world of London in the 1640s and 50s, um, I I came upon uh, actually um, not not planning to, but I came upon. Um, minutes of this group, the Westminster Assembly, which which is what my book is is based on, um, came upon minutes that had been transcribed, included in Chad Van Dixworn's PhD thesis from Cambridge University. And um, as I was reading them, kind of looking for any information relating to setting the context for my work on John Owen, I realized that there was information about this rather obscure controversy um, that wasn't reflected in in secondary literature, so I kind of switched gears um, and and started focusing more on the Westminster Assembly, more on their debates, and uh, came out with with a full, uh, fully fully formed PhD. So, but it is it is a rather uh, um, obscure topic, I think, if um, outside of the circles of of Reformed theology, the Westminster Assembly is a very um, it was a it was an important group for its time and its setting, very important group. But it it has in in one sense fallen by the wayside a little bit in in today's 
um, studies, although it's, it's receiving a renewal with the work of Chad Van Dixhorn and others, um, transcribing minutes that previously hadn't been available. So it is, it is experiencing a bit of a, of a renewal um, today. Which is exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. I, mean, I, th- I think you're very modest about your achievements, Whitney. Uh, it, it may be an obscure debate, but what your book does is to show how a theological debate at what becomes the most important Protestant council of the 17th century, certainly within um, Britain and Ireland, actually has far-reaching social and political ramifications. And I think you can mm. capture that beautifully. Uh, and, and it's something that will appeal to readers from far outside of an historical, theological, um, scholarly bias. Can you tell us a little bit about the Westminster Assembly itself? What was it for? When was it set up? And also, could you tell us about how it's been represented in scholarship up to this point, where I think the burden of explanation has been placed upon the debates about church government that happened in that body? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So the Westminster Assembly was a religious committee of the Long Parliament. So it was called um, in 1643, and Parliament called the committee um, basically to advise Parliament on religious affairs of the nation. And, And this is why the connection to the politics and the history and everything that was going on in England and 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 Great Britain as a whole um, tie in so well with with the work of the Westminster Assembly because it is a parliamentary group gathering. But it was um, a gathering of theologians, um, ministers, and professors, and their task. Parliament gave them the task to revise the. I guess, fund- foundational documents of the Church of England at the time, well, and today, the 39 Articles. And Parliament had, had come to the decision that the documents weren't reformed enough. Um, they wanted them to be, in Parliament's mind, more faithful to the Word of God than they were. And so they called these theologians to gather in London, come from all areas of England, and... Um, come together and spend time going through each article, revising it, editing it, making it more theologically accurate. And as well, um, they wanted the assembly to advise parliament on any other issues theologically, religiously that were going on in, in the nation at the time. So, um, the assembly was very active. So they're, they're revising theological documents, um, as, as, Time goes on. They they actually abandon the thirty nine articles to create their own confession of faith. Um, again, d- directly related to political events. Um, so, Parliament decided to call on the help of the Scots and um, in their in the civil war that they were they were fighting. And part of the agreement that they established with with the Scottish. Um, authorities at the time was basically to create a new confession of faith that would be used in Scotland and England and in Wales as well. Um, so the assembly kind of abruptly was ordered by Parliament to stop working on the 39 articles and and begin writing a new confession of faith. Um, and it's that confession that that they ended up after after years of work that they ended up publishing um, that has endured throughout time and um, 
with Presbyterian churches um, in Scotland and in North America and in Ireland and Northern Ireland as well. Um, so um, it's it's that confession that has endured, and it's typically um, people who subscribe to that confession that have historically done work on the Westminster Assembly. Um, in the past, they have been the ones to um, really carry the um, research on the Westminster Assembly. I think, um, and and they have, as, as you mentioned, focused more heavily on the debates concerning church government. Um, that's that's what they've focused on because there were extensive debates on church government at, at the Westminster Assembly. But I think as as time has gone on and with with new research that's been coming out, we've we realized that, oh, well, there were many theological debates that were going on. There was, there was multifaceted issues at the assembly. And um, and we're just now kind of uncovering those issues and beginning to write on them on them more, as well as bringing in more of the political historical elements as well to the assembly. So it's an exciting time um, for research on this area. And uh, um, so, yes, maybe obscure <laughs> debates, but 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 yes, very important for for the history of the theological development in Great Britain, in North America and really throughout the world with the spread of Presbyterianism. So and your book makes that case with really quite brilliant clarity. That helps us with one part of the subtitle, Westminster Assembly. Help us with the other part of the subtitle, Antinomianism. So your, your, your book captures this moment in 1642-1643 when the censorship of the press suddenly collapses and there's a sudden outpouring of popular writing, some of it much less theologically informed uh, than, 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 than the rest. And within this surge of popular theology, there is this spectre of antinomianism that haunts uh, the divines at Westminster. What is antinomianism and why did it scare them so much? Yes, that is kind of the million dollar question for this book. Is, uh, it, um, antinomianism was, was a, it's, it's almost hard to define because it was an underground movement, as you referenced, until 1642 when antinomian writings started to become published. Um, but it's a movement from within the, the reformed strain of Puritanism. Um, so a movement um, that was very much in line with many aspects of what what we maybe call mainstream Puritanism. Um, but it was in the minds of the Westminster Assembly, a very dangerous movement, um, particularly because of the movement's understanding of the law. So its name antinomianism. So anti against nomos word for law. Um, and one very important aspect of antinomianism was the belief that the law and specifically the moral law, which um, for the divines at this time meant the Ten Commandments, pretty much um, the moral law no longer bound believers or no longer were things that believers would have to be called to keep um, once they became a Christian um, or once they 
once they received um, the Holy Spirit, they, they no longer were bound to keep the moral law. And for the divines, the Westminster Assembly, this was a very dangerous view um, because, well, among among a number of reasons, one would be they were afraid of anarchy. Um, if you have this group that's quite popular, actually extremely popular, especially in London, um, it's an underground movement, but gaining popularity. People are flocking to hear antinomian preachers preach. Um, and in the words of one assembly member, women especially are going to hear this, this, this group, uh, preach. Um, and it's so popular that if one of the teachings is, um, that the moral law no longer applies, well, then how are we going to enjoin people to keep a moral life? Is anarchy going to break out? Are people just going to begin kind of doing whatever they want? Um, so that was one concern. Um, besides some of the more complex theological implications of, of the teaching as well. Um, so that's antinomianism kind of, kind of in a, in a nutshell. Um, but, but yes, it, it, for the assembly, it was in, in their mind, the most important, um, theological error, I guess, that was plaguing England. Actually, even more important to fight against than, than Catholicism, um, and Arminianism. So that's, that was something that in my research I found to be a little surprising because typically you think, oh, who are the theological bad guys during this time? And it's, it's the Catholics or, um, the Arminians, but um, actually, for the assembly, it was more than anything else the antinomians. So fascinating. One of the things that really struck me about the early chapters of the book, in particular, is the diversity that's within the antinomian threat. You've got Church of mm -hmm. England, Church of England ministers like um, Eaton, John, uh, John Eaton, mm -hmm. or, or uh, Crisp. Uh, mm -hmm. Later on in the 1630s, 1640s, people like John Simpson emerge, who mm -hmm. Is, is, for want of a better word, a Congregationalist slash, mm -hmm. slash Baptist who forms or, or, or begins to lead what we would call an apocalyptic new religious movement, the Fifth Monarchists. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and in his, I mean, his position seems especially complicated because on the one hand, you argue he's pushing for antinomianism in terms of personal ethics. The individual believer is not bound by the law. But yet the position of the movement he leads uh, the political vision of the movement he leads is for theocracy. They want mm -hmm. the nation to be brought under God's law. So uh, with, with all this diversity, how much of a centre is there to antinomianism in the 1630s, 40s? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great question. And I think that was the question that the Assembly was trying to get at, actually. So um, they're alerted to this dangerous thread of theological thinking, but they, as a whole, actually weren't at first clear on what this group actually represented. What were the teachings of antinomianism? Was it a common, were there common tenets that you could say all antinomians held to? Um, so what the assembly started with was calling um, a number of quote unquote antinomian, alleged antinomian ministers to the assembly and um to for an examination. Um and Simpson was one of them. And so I I would argue that probably early on in the thirties there there wasn't necessarily a 
a, a central core. I think it was developed uh, underground. Um, I, I think you can make the case there was there was one kind of earliest teacher, John Eaton, um, and he, in his number of pages of writing his sermons that that do get published, you can you can begin to draw out themes. And he was so influential that he did influence the next generation of men like Crisp and, and Simpson. So that by the time the 1650s roll around, you c- there is a, a common set of beliefs. But at the same time, um, they, it was such a diverse group. Um, but I think at the core, each, each alleged antinomian did hold to some belief that the law no longer applied to the believers. So that, that really is the core of um, their beliefs. And then from there, yes, great diversity as far as how that belief actually impacted then their other views, their political views, their views on church government, their views on baptism even. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting group to kind of to grasp. And um, David Como um, a number of years ago, did a wonderful book that kind of traced the earliest strains of of the antinomian movement as well. So, how 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 well or how accurately can we understand this group as a group that's especially interested in Martin Luther? Mm. Mm. Yes, um, Luther is quoted more than any other theologian, actually, in in antinomian writings. Um, and why is that? Is, well, I th- I think it, it comes down to Luther's understanding of the law, and particularly Luther's work in Galatians. His Galatians commentary is mm-hmm. cited by John Eaton um, more than any other work. Um, it's included on the front um, uh, published uh, page of Eaton's of Eaton's big antinomian work, um, and I and I think Luther's understanding of the freedom of the Christian from the law um, was really what drove drove the antinomian spirit. And for Luther, he wrote against Catholicism or or strains within the church. I mean, um, legalistic, arguably legalistic strains within the church. And um, I think for the antinomian, Luther's spirit of freedom was very appealing. And um, and and he, he is their hero, um, starting from Johnny indefinitely and then continuing on through even the next generation as well. So so how did the Divines of the Westminster Assembly respond to this? They bring in several antinomian preachers, they examine them, they try to find a common centre or perhaps some shared theological themes. Once they've mm-hmm. got that body of information, what do they do next? So they debate <laughs> what to do, like any good committee of Parliament. Um, they, they have some pretty spirited debates um, what to do with the the result of their examination and, and there's actually disagreement within the assembly um parliament wants the assembly to make a judgment on antinomians are are they heretical are they just misguided do they need to be instructed um further you know receive further theological training and members of the assembly are divided some think hands down that they're heretical um and and parliament should be alerted that this group is 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 a, is a heretical group and they should receive the concomitant concomitant 
punishment that Parliament would would meet out for for heretical groups. Others say no, they are merely misguided. They just need to be instructed further, um, and we should treat them as brothers in Christ and um, and instruct them and hope for, I guess, the best in them kind of learning more about what true theology is. So they do end up after after quite um heated debate they do end up submitting um their judgment to parliament and they 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 say it's antinomianism isn't a heretical group um they they are in error they err in many important points of theology but they they are not heretical so so they submit that petition to parliament in 1644 and um after that Really, antinomianism, as far as the assembly is concerned, it, it's not brought up again. Um, so I think in the mind of the assembly, it did its duty by informing parliament about what antinomianism is. Hmm. And and then it, it's it, antinomianism is, is, is almost completely dropped from the minutes hmm. from that point on. Um which is interesting. So it's, it really was a very heated, intense, but short amount of time in relation to the whole length of the assembly's years of meeting. Um, it, it really was only an issue that they were concerned about for the first year um, of, of their meeting. So, Is there any sense in your research that members of the assembly begin to worry that other members of the assembly are possibly heading in an antinomian direction? I'm thinking in particular of the debate they have about imputation. Justification, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that was a, that was a a major concern. So in in the book, I um, in the second half of the book, it, it's more concerned with some of the pretty complex theological debates that that the assembly had in relation to concerns that antinomian theology raised. And as you mentioned, one was about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, his work uh, to the believer, specifically his work of keeping the law. Um, how is that applied to the to the believer? And in those debates, um, they <laughs> the, the the assembly is divided, uh, um, and and some members even accuse other members of of espousing antinomian beliefs. Um, so it does get pretty heated on the floor of 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 the assembly, and um, I think I don't think that they necessarily truly believed that 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 person was actually an antinomian. But I think they were concerned that well, if you hold to your position that Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer, well, then what is keeping you from becoming an antinomian? Um, and so it was raised more in that spirit, but. Um, certainly, I think there was a fear that, well, we have to define what is happening with the work of Christ. And um, if we aren't careful, uh, it could lead down, a, in their minds, a very dangerous path um, towards antinomianism. Hmm. So at, at the beginning of the assembly, 1643, antinomianism is something out there. It's an external mm-hmm. threat. Mm-hmm. Later on in the assembly, as its deliberations continue, members are beginning to use the language of antinomianism to attack each other or to mm-hmm. undermine each other's position. Is that mm-hmm. because the definition of antinomianism is changing? Mm. 
That's a great question. I think, I think so. I think as they work through what actually is this, this thing called antinomianism, as they work, work out the definition, their own, the, the members of the assembly's own theological positions come to light in a way that hadn't come to light before. So Thomas Gattaker, for instance, who's a, who was a, one of, uh, he, uh, one of the most often recorded speakers on the floor of the assembly. So he, he spoke a lot. Um, he, uh, his positions on justification and Christ's work become clear only as the issue of antinomianism is debated. And as he begins to talk about his understanding of Christ's work, other members of the assembly say, wait a second. You sound like an antinomian. Oh. Tell, please tell us your position on justification. And they even request him to to explain what actually he believes on these issues. Oh. Um, and if antinomianism weren't a concern, if it hadn't been raised, uh, he who knows, but he probably wouldn't have gotten to that point of explaining his position in that way. So, um and this is one point that I make in the book as well. The impact of antinomianism actually was great in in relation to the assembly's own theological development, I think, in their own thinking about some of these very important issues like the imputation of Christ's work, like what exactly does the law play in sanctification, in in making a believer holy. I think antinomianism becomes kind of the... Um, the light that 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 starts a fire in their own thinking through mm. some of these important theological issues. Mm. So. And it's a fire that never really goes out, does it? Because mm -hmm. even a couple of decades later, you've got that famous dispute between Richard Baxter and John Owen, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. again, turning upon this issue of antinomianism and mm -hmm. its relationship to the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Mm hmm. What was your biggest surprise as you as you worked through this body of of, of research? Well, uh, I, there were a lot of surprises along the way. Um, I think one one thing that did surprise me actually was the level of diversity at the assembly. In so far as the issue of justification by faith, which in historical theology we kind of think, oh, well, that was decided at the Continental Reformation hundred years previous um, to this time, well, we come hundred years later to England and theologians don't, theologians don't agree and they don't even necessarily have a good working definition of some of these very central theological um, points. And that to me was surprising um, just because of the makeup of the assembly. These are all theologians that many of them had doctorates at this time. Many of them were, had been ministers for decades. Um, and their understanding of some of these issues was still developing. Um, and I think by the time their confession of faith comes out, um, they reached, uh, in my understanding, a very um, beautifully complex and thorough definition of these things. Um, so the chapter on justification, it, chapter 11, is it, it's incredible. It's, I think it's unmatched in English confessions, um, in the English language. Um, but it took them time to get there. And uh, that, to me, was surprising, just the process 
of kind of forming these theological ideas. So, so help us think about this, Whitney, because the final version of the confession is often thought to be a kind of negotiated centre. So mm. there's, there's huge variety at Westminster, but the final wording is the text that everyone agrees upon. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes there's an argument around its potential for ambiguity as a consequence. How, how mm-hmm. do you, having studied this and thought carefully about this, how do you read the final text? Is that a text that everyone has signed off on? Mm-hmm. And if so, is it ambiguous in any way? Or is it simply the text of the body within the assembly that was most influential and they were happy to make that text as robust as it possibly could be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that is that is the question I think of of Westminster Confession studies is what is this final version and and um, is it a consensus document? Um, I I tend to think um, more that it it's a document that I would say a vast majority of the assembly was very happy to sign off on mm-hmm. um it as far as the minutes of the debates they're they're surprisingly aside from antinomianism and church government um there wasn't a lot of sphere to debate on really many of the other issues at, at, at all mm-hmm. um of course church government there was there was significant debate um and so that the those sections i think more represent uh the majority view that the minority kind of agreed to let go. Um, but I'd say other than, other than those sections, uh, there, there just wasn't a lot of debate over, over the, the rest of the confession. Um, and even with the area of justification, um, and, and the issues related to antinomianism, sanctification, the law, um, once the assembly, I think worked out in an, in itself, some of the theological issues, it seems from the minutes that, that the sides agreed. Um, and it wasn't just an agree to disagree, but they actually worked through the theological issues to the extent that, that Thomas Gattaker, for instance, was, was willing and happy to, with the final product. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But but that is that is an issue of debate among among researchers still. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Well, I think we're all going to be helped by your work. It's it's an incredibly illuminating and compelling and convincing book, and I'm sure it's going to make a big impact. What kind of impact do you hope it will make? Well, I, I wrote the book um, out of out of interest <laughs> in the subject myself, but um, I I would hope that it would illumine the work of the assembly more um for for researchers but also just for even the educated or even even the the lay person um in church of england and presbyterian um churches i think it is it is the the heritage of many of churches around the world, um, the work of the assembly. So I would hope it would be of interest, uh, both to historians and, and theologians and, um, lay people. And, um, I, I think the work of the assembly was, was just very important. And it, in my mind, changed church history, changed the history of theology 
forever with with the confession of faith and the documents. So um, if I can help uncover some of that um, work, I think I think I've I've done something that is, is exciting. Good. Well, it certainly is exciting. Well, Whitney, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Sure. So I I am kind of taking the next step at, um, with some of the theological issues that I cover in the book. Um, so particularly of interest to me are the debates about justification um, in Christ's work. And as you've mentioned before, um, these debates continue. So they continue in England. They get transferred up to Scotland, where the church very passionately debates some of these issues. So um, right now I'm working on basically the, taking the next historical step. So looking at these debates extended on into the 1650s, 1660s, um, and particularly centered on some of these same issues of Christ's work and justification, sanctification. So what I'm working on now. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we look forward to seeing that in due course too. But in the meantime, listen, thanks for writing this book, Christ and the Law, Antinomianism at the Westminster Assembly, just published by Reformation Heritage Book at the end of last year. And thanks to you for coming on to the show for talking about it. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.